I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running and, and trying to unlearn some of the subconscious and again, some of the more conscious things that I learned around having to achieve, having to outperform just to, to be considered you know, worthy, so to speak. You are worthy just by your own existence. You don't need to prove to anyone that uh, you belong here. And I don't think I necessarily heard that voice growing up. I didn't have the mentors that said that to me because it wasn't an attainable reality. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Eric Kim. Eric is a co-founder and managing partner at Goodwater Capital. Goodwater is a venture fund founded in 2014 and manages over $1.1 billion across its funds. They were early investors in companies like Musical.ly, Copang, and Cacao. Before Goodwater, Eric was a managing director at Maverick Capital and a business analyst at McKinsey. In this episode, we spoke with Eric about unlearning the association between achievement, acceptance, and self-worth, raising capital for his firm, Goodwater, one of the few venture firms founded and led by Asian Americans, and why it's more important now than ever for Asian Americans to serve their community rather than prove their worth through achievement. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Across the Lines. One way that we like to kick off our podcast uh, that listeners are well familiar with now is, is asking our guests what their favorite food was growing up. So what was that for you, Eric? Thanks, Jay. And thanks, Angie, for having me. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. So I'm a Midwest kid at heart. And there's this place called Ted Drew's frozen custard ice cream, basically. And you would stand in these long lines. And in St. Louis, it's hot and humid. Imagine even in the nights, like 95 degrees, you know, humidity, you could put your arm out there and you'd find sweat buds or just moisture accumulating on your arm. You're standing in these long lines for Ted Drew's frozen custard, and you get to the front of the line. You can basically ask for anything. It was kind of like Cold Stone before Cold Stone's Creamery, where you could have things smushed in. And for me, it was always um, vanilla with Oreo cookies kind of crushed in. And that was something that I always looked forward to with my family. It was such a Americana-type experience growing up in the Midwest with, with my family there, but we would go after ball games, after dinners, and it's something that brings back a lot of memories for me. And Eric, could you explain what frozen custard is? I'm familiar <laughs> with gelato, with soft serve, but I don't think I've ever had frozen custard. You know, it, it, it's, it's a thicker kind of frozen yogurt, basically. So think of frozen yogurt, but with instead of the healthy kind of positioning that frozen yogurt has, like the unhealthiest frozen yogurt possible with the thickest cream. So it tastes more like ice cream itself, but with a texture more like frozen yogurt itself. Oh, it sounds amazing. It, it yeah. seems like I might have to make a salt and straw run right after yeah. this. It's down the street. So this is just making me crave all that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Eric, I'd love if you could tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in Missouri. 
were there a lot of folks around you who you could share a culture with? Did you feel a strong need to assimilate? I'd love to hear a bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, I think it's not too dissimilar to a lot of Asian Americans who grew up in primarily suburban areas of the United States. So it was not similar to some of my friends who might have grown up in K-Town in LA or Flushing, New York. But in Missouri, it was a predominantly white neighborhood environment that I grew up in. My parents immigrated from South Korea in the early 70s. I was born in New York City, but we, we moved down to St. Louis when I was about three years old. And I would say that even some of my earliest memories, even in kindergarten or early elementary school, race was something that became a forefront to my existence or my conscious and subconscious itself, because frankly, I was the only kid in my class that looked like me. St. Louis itself is an interesting city where in my public schools, it was a predominantly white neighborhood, but we had uh, integrated, what they called integrated busing. So taking inner city, primarily black kids, bringing them to some of the suburbs uh, of St. Louis itself. And at the same time, myself as an Asian American, you know, people didn't really know what to make of me in many ways, because there weren't that many in my class. I think I was one of two of hundreds of kids. And so it was interesting. I think I really, frankly, loved a lot of the Midwest values that I grew up in, but I also faced a lot of the ignorance that, again, a lot of folks wouldn't be surprised by in terms of I was alien to a lot of people. I didn't look the same. And it, it was interesting to see how that progressed from playground names when I was little to, you know, more systemic things later on. But it was, it was, I think, what has made me into who I am today in terms of some of the resilience and what we've had to face, what I've had to face over the years itself. I love the differentiation between the conscious and the subconscious. I'm curious what those subconscious, I guess, impacts were of you growing up. And as you've gotten older, how have you tried to potentially unlearn those subconscious behaviors that may have been negatively impacting you, or yeah. maybe there are potential subconscious behaviors that ended up helping you? Could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I can remember. I don't know exactly how old I was, but I, I don't think I was much older than 10 or 12 years old at the time when my dad actually sat me down and said, hey, Eric, because you're Asian and you look the way you do, you have to work 150% harder than anyone else. When people see two resumes or two kind of credentials side by side, you have to be 150% better to be considered even on close to parity or equal footing. And this is like a kid, like in fifth grade or junior high, like hearing this from your parents and you, you know, what has often been casted as this model minority work ethic of Asian Americans for me, it was ingrained at a very early age as a way of survival, as a way of earning worth in some ways. And I will say that how it's crept from the conscious to subconscious is thinking about this notion of being able to outrun racism with achievement. That if I just performed well enough over the years, and this took on many forms. I grew up as a pretty serious cellist. Actually, I performed at Carnegie Hall, Avery Fisher Hall, Alice Tully Hall, all these things. But the idea of performance as a way to prove one's worth uh, was something that had kind of been ingrained in me, both very explicitly from my parents, who that was a way of them, you know, being able to make a life for themselves here in this country, 
to then more subconsciously thinking, okay, if I just achieve, if I just go to a good school, and I, I did all those things, I, you know, was in many ways a quote unquote model minority. I went to Yale, I graduated Phi Beta Kappa, magna cum laude, I worked at McKinsey, I went to Stanford for business school, all those things, right? But over time, you realize it had been pounded into your head to just achieve and try to outrun the racism and then maybe you might be accepted. But I'll tell you, Jay, like especially in the light of the news of the past, not just few weeks or months, but this has been happening for decades. It's been highlighted and exasperated certainly through the, during the pandemic with a lot of xenophobic blame being put upon Asians, Asian Americans. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running and, and trying to unlearn some of the subconscious and again, some of the more conscious things that I learned around having to achieve, having to outperform just to, to be considered you know, worthy, so to speak. And that's why I feel like compelled to come onto your show and, and this podcast, Angie and Jay, to, to share maybe to folks who are younger or of a different generation of Asian Americans or Pan-Asian Americans thinking about their worth that, of course, we we do our best. We're here to add value, but you are worthy just by your own existence. You don't need to prove to anyone that uh, you belong here, you know, and, and I don't think I necessarily heard that voice growing up. I didn't have the mentors that said that to me because it wasn't an attainable reality. We had to work our asses off, pardon my French, to get to where we are today. And yet, if you look at our community, it's a community, the Asian American community is in dire straits. We are in so much pain. And I'm, I know I'm in a position of privilege. And I, to the extent I can use that to speak on behalf and to help the broader community, this is a community that has the greatest economic disparity of any ethnic or racial group in the United States. This is a community that in the past 12 months during the pandemic, has experienced the greatest percentage of long-term unemployment, 46% versus any other ethnic or racial group in this country because, again, of the xenophobic blame put against Asian Asian Americans, then therefore people are more hesitant to hire or to employ and to give economic opportunity as well. We've seen, you all know the stats very, very well, 149% increase in hate crimes against the Asian American community during a time because of shelter in place of a negative 7% decrease of hate crimes across the board itself. So this singling out of a, an ethnic minority of a racial group, many will ask, my parents live in Atlanta, my sister lives in Atlanta, were those attacks, were those killings racially motivated? People will look at what's happening on Market Street in San Francisco, outside apartment buildings in Manhattan, and say, hey, well, were those when they say, go home, you don't belong here, and then physically attack people in our community, were those really racially motivated or not? Well, I can tell you, and others can tell you, based on our personal experiences and also the data, we know the truth. We know the truth about it. And I will say, as an Asian American, we can't outrun this anymore. We have to stand up. Our voices have to be heard at this point. And so again, I'm, I'm thankful for this opportunity to be with you and your audiences today. Eric, that was so incredibly powerful. I just want to take a moment to, to digest that and really internalize it. But conversely, we are so grateful for mentor figures like yourself who have the courage to speak out and have outsized opinions about some of these things. And 
I'm not sure if you've read this book called Minor Feelings by Kathy yeah. Hong Park. Yeah. I, oh my God, it's just so incredibly powerful. And what you said there really reminded me of this one phrase, which one of my friends actually posted a story this day. So I'll just read it and, and get your reaction. But the quote is, my ego is in free fall while my super ego is boundless, railing that my existence is not enough, never enough. So I become compulsive in my efforts to do better, be better, blindly following this country's gospel of self-interest, proving my individual worth by expanding my net worth until I vanish. Yeah. So I think that really encapsulates a lot of what we're speaking about here of you just got, you try to outrun the racism, the hate, but then you realize you can't when it finally yeah. catches up to you. And I'd be curious, Eric, in this, in this process of unlearning some of these things that have been really ingrained in you from the very early days, what are some tactical ways of thinking or some things that our listeners can take away as to how you've been able to, to aid yourself in this journey as you've been trying to reverse your narrative, especially since we operate still in a system that parameterizes us based on those things that we have learned. So is there anything that you'd be able to share there? Yeah, please, please send me that quote, by the way, that was, For sure. that was super powerful. And, and what resonated and kind of answering your question is a lot of it has to do with why uh, we started Goodwater. I co-founded Goodwater seven years ago was that being able to free oneself from the cycle of expanding one's self-worth, so to speak, in, in the quote unquote, frankly, the rat race in many ways of corporate America. I have a lot to be thankful for all the experiences that I've had over the, the years, great mentors, great places to learn and to train being able to dedicate one's life to service and to be outside of one's ego, essentially, because you realize that one's self-worth isn't in the balance sheet that you have or your professional accomplishments themselves. But in some ways, and I think this is where the Asian American community can really start to be leaders within America, is to think about how can we be of service to our brothers and sisters out there? whether they're in the Asian American community or whether beyond in the black community, the Latin X community, I am no saint by any means, but to answer your question, what has been a huge change for me was when we started Goodwater, we had a mission oriented approach to our investing. We started Goodwater with the explicit mission of empowering exceptional entrepreneurs who are changing the world. And we focused just on consumer technology because that touches every single person's life every single day almost every single hour. Whether you take an Uber, watch Netflix, listen to Spotify, check social media, read the news, listen to a podcast, that's all for us under the broad umbrella of consumer technology, financial services. What has been liberating for me, and it's been a journey, and I can't say I'm there by any means. I still struggle with ego, with trying to prove my self-worth, to grasp onto proving that. Uh, but in what you recited, you know, in that I will vanish, I know that's going to be all in vain over time. But if I can dedicate my life to a life of service in some ways, if I can dedicate my professional work to serving others in some way, shape or form, that provides unlimited energy and it provides a perspective, I think, on what one does with one's time here on earth to be helpful, to be a creative, to not just fight for one's own self-worth, 
but to really think about how can we make this a better place for everyone. But that is a very hard transition, frankly, for kids of immigrants, because you're coming here and you're like surviving. You're trying to make it, so to speak. And education was a way for a lot of us to break free, right? That was power for us in many ways. But that sense of achievement itself, I think, can get in the way. That chip on our shoulders can get so heavy and so big that in trying to unchip that or to, to prove one's worth, we forget that actually, you know, having a purpose, having this be of service to others, what I find truly rewarding, why you and Jay, Angie, you and Jay here are creating, taking your time to create this podcast for others is not for yourself because you want to serve others in this. And I think that's where I hope that Asian Americans, you know, we're not done we, we haven't fought, we still need to fight for people to acknowledge and to see us as well. And while we do that in parallel, if we can start to really serve the broader community, serve our community as well, I think that'll be tremendously powerful for our own movement and to, to really say to the world, to say to America, we are not aliens, we are part of this community. You know, this is a great time of reflection I think for our community to think about those tenets and principles as well. Heard before Angie and I came on uh, to the podcast, we were meeting with our internal LinkedIn employee resource group, which supports Asian Americans in the workforce, specifically for LinkedIn. And we're we're planning a workshop to bring in LinkedIn leaders that have untraditional backgrounds. They have, you know maybe not gone to all of the top schools and haven't worked at all the top companies and, and, but they're still in leadership position. And Angie and I, Angie and I were looking through our executive ranks first, finding a smaller percentage of them, obviously that are Asian American, but then finding even, even smaller percentage of those that don't have the traditional background. And I think one thing that you're, you're articulating as well is that we need to almost have those traditional backgrounds to get into leadership positions because then people may not take you seriously enough. And, and for yourself, having quote unquote, traditional background, going to Yale, going to Stanford, working at the McKinsey's, I'm curious how this idea of the necessity to have a traditional background ended up either helping you or kind of giving you challenges when you were raising the fund. Yeah, I was not a college dropout that did product management for, for a couple of years and then suddenly was able to raise a fund. Like you've seen some of these stories out there. We were pedigreed, frankly. We came from, from some of the top funds. We had track records that were very, very strong. The company that I led an investment into that went public recently is Coupang out of South Korea. All the information is now public in the SEC filings, but that position is worth you know, $6 billion, right? So there's, there's a lot of track record that has kind of helped in the, the fact that you come from what folks would call high quality institutions. I think that is helpful in kind of fundraising environment, I would say. But I don't take for granted that, you know, we are two Asian American founders that were able to start a fund from scratch. And despite you may think and see that there's a lot of Asian Americans in venture or technology broadly, it's actually quite rare to have an Asian American founded venture capital firm and led venture capital firm. There's, to my knowledge, not that many out there. And so 
we see that now as a distinction that we feel a sense of uh, responsibility for, we feel a sense of pride for as well to utilize that platform. And we also feel a great sense of service to the, the wonderful LPs we've been able to attract and to work with. And they are very mission and values aligned. And if they see us and they say, hey, they don't look like venture capitalists, if that's their reaction, they're not the right LPs for us. It may not have been an obvious decision for a lot of those folks to decide to back us early on because we may not look at like out of um, central casting, so to speak. And we had a number of, of mentors that really helped us at the beginning get started. And it's not lost on us and it's not lost on them some of the significance because of, of our background and, and the color of our skin. To your point, Eric, it might not have been an obvious decision, especially back in the early days for some of these LPs, because if there is one trope about venture, it's pattern matching. And when you don't have that many Asian-led firms out there, it's hard to imagine the archetype of someone filling those shoes. So I'm curious for you, when you were going through that fundraising process, just to dig a little deeper here, do you remember any distinct moments or stories in which your Asian-American identity either helped you along in your process and journey, or maybe even cast obstacles in that process? Yeah, my hope was that our results would speak for themselves in, in many ways, and that our approach and our dif differentiation, our track record, I would say that there were definitely times that there are folks who I don't think they bought in to the story of two Asian Americans starting a, a venture capital firm and having to compete in one of the most competitive industries and breaking the mold there a bit. And I think that's the, an important distinction is that you see a lot of Asian Americans in technology today, but in terms of executive leadership, we are vastly underrepresented across the industry itself. The Ascend Foundation put out a great study uh, looking at workplace data. And in Silicon Valley, Asian Americans is one of the largest cohorts of ethnic groups that are represented in Silicon Valley itself. However, according to the Ascend Foundation study, we are the least likely to be promoted to the executive ranks of technology companies itself. And I think that's an interesting narrative to unpack is that even in technology, which is one of the most diverse, quote unquote, or woke or DEI kind of tuned industries out there, in terms of the executive ranks, we have very, very little representation itself. There are a lot of companies that are happy to employ Asian Americans. The question is, are they willing to promote and make them part of the executive ranks? And this goes to kind of, I think, your overall question, Angie. In our case, it's fundraising or creating a fund or being leaders of a venture capital firm. I think there's also like in the LinkedIn context itself or in, in broader big company context, what is the representation that really holds there? In the context of what's been going on in the Asian American community, particularly in the past few weeks, people getting killed, people being brutally attacked, it has also made us think about what is the representation we have in corporate America Take a look at the top 10 companies in corporate America. The top 10 companies in the US make up more than 28% of the, the market cap of the S&P 500. 10 companies out of 505 companies in S&P 500. I know it says S&P 500, but there's actually 505 companies. So <laughs> less than 2% of 
the companies make up more than 28%, right? This is Apple, Alphabet, Berkshire Hathaway, Johnson & Johnson, Visa. Take a look at the C-suite, take a look at the boards, and you can, you can see all the DEI numbers of their employee base. It can be very diversified. But when you look at the executive ranks, you can see very clearly how far we have to go in many ways. And so I think what has motivated us in some ways is that in our own small way, we represent executive leadership. Right? We, are, we, we, we run a venture capital firm here with over a billion dollars of AUM in Silicon Valley itself. And so that I think there, there needs to be more of that representation, not on behalf of just the technology elites and so that more people can go into high tech, but because there's a ripple effect, thinking back to that economic disparity or that unemployment, the fact that over 2 million small businesses are owned by Asian Americans. So if you think about what's happened in the pandemic, it's in an outsized way affected Asian American store owners and laundromat owners and you know, the, the small businesses, the, the local grocery market, but that's owned by Asian Americans, th that's really been afflicted greatly. So it, again, it's not just about having executives in tech. It's about what's the ripple effect and the broader representation and power, frankly, that is then extended to this minority group. Same thing goes for politics. I'm not a political person, but it's very easy to see. Two senators, you know, only two senators are Asian American descent. Right in the House of Representatives today, the, the broader API uh, community, you know, I think is represented by about 21 House of Representatives. If you include Pacific Islanders, also South Asians, the representation is minuscule today as well. And it's just something we need to acknowledge and think about. How do we think about helping to protect and to empower minorities that have been really attacked, literally physically and killed? So again, a lot of this comes back to representation uh, broadly. And in our context, it's a, it's a venture capital firm. In the broader tech context, it's, it's big tech, if you will. And what's the representation look like there at, at, you know, at, a, at a company like Google that has 51% Asian Americans, but then you look at the, the, the C-suite itself, you know, what does that representation look like? And, and I think that's just the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves as we think long-term that representation matters, diversity is good. It's not just good for our community, but it's good for everyone as well. And Eric, you mentioned that we need to step up and be able to support this community. One thing that you've been doing over the past few weeks and, and month is to work with a, a variety of different other venture capitalists and, and entrepreneurs to raise um, $5 million to be able to support causes related to AAPI violence. I'm, I'm curious for you to share a little bit more about that where is the money going? And, and curious also, what was the process behind the scenes to be able to raise this money? And, and what were those conversations like when you were reaching out to these other Asian American leaders and saying like, hey, we need to do something about this. Like we need to put our money where our mouth is. So the, a sequence of events, I think were happening in parallel. One for my own personal reflection, soon after the Atlanta attacks, I really felt like our community wasn't saying, it was dead silent. We weren't saying enough. We weren't being outspoken. So I wrote a LinkedIn post just reflecting on my kind of own personal feelings. And that went a little bit viral in its own way. And there were both trolls and supporters around it that I was just asking people, hey, if you have an Asian American friend, you, you got to reach out. Now's the time. You've got a friend, a colleague, someone in the workplace, just reach out. At the same time, my really good friend Hans Tung at GGV 
tweeted out with his partners, Jeff Richards and, and Glenn Solomon, that they would match $100,000 of any donations given to AAPI organizations fighting hate and racism. And Jeremy Liu from Lightspeed immediately tweeted back, I'm in too for 100K. And then soon after that, Chi and myself from Goodwater were like, we're in as well. So you had kind of in the span of a couple hours, you know, three VCs basically say, hey, we're in for 300K. And that started this movement that, again, I want to give all the credit to GGV and Hans and his partners. They really led a coalition of getting people behind and taking a stance and, and, and say, hey, will you stand with us? And frankly, it was a lot of Asian American VCs that, that stepped in, but Lydia Jett from SoftBank, you know, you know, came in as well. She was like, hey, I want to stand with you as well. There are a number of non-Asians that came in to, to, to help out as well as a sign of support. And, and the capital was raised to match donations to inspire the broader community to, to start to give as well. And as we tweeted about it, some of our friends in media, Jeremy Lin, Eric Nam, Daniel Day Kim, you know, Arden Cho, they, they started to retweet because they had already been using their voices you know, very effectively. It, it, I think it showed an, ex, an example of how if we work together, we can actually unify and do a positive thing for our community. And so I think this has been a bit of a rallying cry. It's very, very unfortunate that it's taken this, these unfortunate set of events. And people ask the question like, why now? But the silver lining, if any, you might be able to call it, is that I think it is rallying our community to stand together and to say enough is enough. Eric, I think that really highlights the insidious nature of the model minority myth, where to your point, it's so unfortunate that it's taken this for people to actually open their eyes and, and realize that there are real challenges that our community faces. And again, you know, if there's a silver lining of any, for me, it's been seeing a lot of Asian American leaders, often you know, many who haven't spoken about these issues before, take a stand sometimes for the first time and, and really leverage their voices and their platforms to move the conversation forward. So Eric, to wrap up our time together, we'd love to learn from you. Looking back on your career, what would you say is the best thing that you've done for yourself? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight something that's happened more recent amidst the the, the crisis that our community is within. I've been giving all hands at some of our portfolio companies just to talk about, to humanize the Asian American experience as someone who might be on your board or an investor kind of maybe perceived as senior, but to put a face to it and what's going on and to hear my own personal experiences. For me, it's super emotionally draining, but you asked like, what are the, what's one of the best things I've ever done for myself in my career professionally? I've never cried in my 20 years of working experience ever in the workplace, much less presenting to hundreds of people. And to be at a point where I could actually cry in a professional setting because I was fully being myself. Now I'm not telling people, hey, go go all of a sudden into your manager's office and start bawling your eyes out and all these things. Like if you want to go for it, but I think by being part of a model minority myth and buying into that myself in some ways and, and being that part of my conscious and self-conscious, there's so much that is bottled up for us because we have to look 150% better, 150% more accomplished, more polished, more prepared, 
but allowing myself and, and giving myself my space to actually, to be really real with myself in, in a vulnerable way for others was a huge gift, maybe to others. I, I think some folks really appreciate the vulnerability, but for me, it allowed me a space that I had never afforded myself before to actually feel and to be myself within the workplace as well. And again, professional settings are professional settings. I get it. But there are some extenuating circumstances where we need to let people be people first. They're not just employees. And, I, and being able to let myself be that for myself first, for the first time in my career, I think it really meant a lot for me personally. Eric, thank you so much. It was very powerful to be able to speak with you. Thank you so much for being vulnerable. Thank you so much for just sharing your story. And I'm excited for others to listen to it as well. But thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.